I asked Danny to lead that song, Revive Us Again, just a moment ago. I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought that we actually asked God to do something for us, to revive us again. That, that word again is interesting. In fact, um, I grew up, that was the title. I think we call it We Praise the O God, but I remember the title being Revive Us Again. But you, you, you think about this, revive us, you're asking God to rejuvenate us, to give us a renewed focus and fervor, but you're asking him to do it again. And the only thing I can think about as I sing that song and I think about that is I've, I've had more fervor and focus in my spiritual life before now. I've lost some of it. I've gotten distracted. Uh, there's something that's degenerated that fervor and I need it again. So what happened between the last time that I asked God to revive me, and this time when I asked God to revive me, what caused that degeneration? Now, this, this means something. This means that you might have a great resolve and focus right now in your life to be right with God. You want to be right with God. You want to be living your life within His grace and His mercy and within His coverage of the blood of Jesus. You might, you might be living that way right now, but that does not mean that two months from now you'll have that same resolve. It doesn't just stay there. It's not something that you get one time and then you coast off of it and you know you'll be faithful. I remember a Soto, the first Soto um, marriage retreat that I was part of, and we, we watched the movie Fireproof where these two people had some kind of Christian faith of some kind, but they were going through a marriage problem and they were deciding to chunk. She was deciding to chunk the marriage. At least she was in process of that. And we talked about it after we watched the movie, and I said, what would you say to that girl in the, at church who's... who's actually entertaining the thought of a divorce what would you say and they all talked about that well this is what we you can't do that this is this is not what God wants you to do and that's not what scripture says and that's not what you signed on for but can I tell you that that woman who's contemplating divorce believed that same thing a year ago when she said the vows and when she came to church she believed all that you just said but something happened between that time when she believed that with all her heart to now she's actually talked herself into entertaining the idea of leaving her spouse just because you're faithful today doesn't mean you'll be faithful a month from now revive us again god because we're waning. But the other thing, the good news about Revive Us Again, is we can come back to God for an unlimited supply of revivals. We can come back to God at any time. We recognize it. We've discerned. We've monitored our spiritual lives, and something is just not right. Something is, something is overbearing. Something's distracting me. God, I'm coming back again, and I'm saying, revive me again. It's not like he just does it one time, and if you lose it, you're gone for good. No, no, no. He says, keep coming back. And we can ask God for it because it's a prayer. We're asking God to revive us. God's got something to do with this. The psalmist says that too. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The psalmist says, God, we, we feel a degeneration of our faithfulness and our fervor, and we're asking you to restore us. And if you know anything about Scripture at all from the Old Testament, even the measliest amount, you know this, God's people struggled to be consistently faithful all the way through the Old Testament. It was like a roller coaster. At one minute, they pledged their ultimate allegiance to God, and you thought, man, these people, they've just seen the Red Sea. They've just seen these amazing miracles. There's no way they can budge from a walk from God. Uh, wrong again. 
It wasn't very long after that, and they were waning yet again. Consistency is one of the hardest things for human beings to maintain on anything, but especially a consistent walk with God. Highway hypnosis of life, you just get lulled to sleep. Hectic schedules and things that distract. Pascal said, we are attracted. Human beings are attracted to distractions. So Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Keep your zeal and your fervor high. But there were always gods around that enticed the Israelites to just drift away from God. Life comes at us. Things change. We get lulled, and suddenly that fervor wanes. You can review the story real quick, right? Moses takes them out of Egyptian slavery, cross the Red Sea, the miracle feedings and waterings, and the amazing things God does to guide them by a cloud and by fire. And God is leading them, and they have this dramatic moment on Mount Sinai, and you think, man, these people are set for life. But then he hands it off to Joshua, and Joshua takes the reins, and he crosses the Jordan on dry ground, and he makes a day last longer than it should by the sun goes backwards he does all these things and yet at the end of Joshua's time he says guys I see you wavering I see you just losing that fervor and I'm telling you right now choose right now who you're going to serve the gods of the your forefathers beyond the river the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living you, you, you've got options there's a smorgasbord or buffet of choices you choose but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and everybody yeah that's what we'll do that's what we'll do turn over a book and you got the book of after jo after Joshua there's what Judges, and you know what Judges was like, right? After that generation grew up and they died, another generation grew up who didn't know the Lord or what the Lord had done for Israel, and they start this weird cycle. We love God. We're bored. We're in trouble. Come save us. We love God. We're bored. Come save us. We love God. We're bored. Come save us. Does this start sounding like a rotating wheel? I mean, that's, we get bored. We get bored with a weekly faithfulness. And then we get in trouble, and then we cry out to God, come save us, and he does, and we, we can't say, and here's the main reason for them. For them, it was this. I mean, it was repeated in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Here's the number one thing uh, that distracts us from our devotion to God is, I want to do what I want to do, and I'm tired of God calling the shots and restraining me. And that leads to the roller coaster dip in the book of Judges. Well, then, by the end of the Judges period, everybody's like, well, that doesn't work. Let's get kings. And why did they choose kings? Anybody remember? Why did they choose kings? We want to be like everybody else. And there's number two. Not only want to call the shots, but I want to be like everybody else around me. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be peculiar. And so I want to be like everybody else, and I want kings. And they get kings, and you know, it's okay. It's okay. David does pretty good, and Solomon starts out well. But before long, the kings all go bad, too. Fall away quickly. Joash comes along. Sorry, Asa. Thank you for that correction on the slides. Asa comes along in 890 B.C. 
The kings have all gone bad, and Asa rises up, and he decides he's got spiritual fervor, and he's going to lead the people back, and he does. Asa reads the words of God, the prophecy of one of God's prophets, and he took courage, and he put away the detestable idols. He learned that idolatry was wrong. Let's put that stuff away, and they do. And they go and they go to all the land of Judah and they clear away all the abominating stuff that's there and they go into the house of the Lord and the altar that had broken and nobody was worshiping because the worship was broken. And, and now they fix it. Now they can worship again and they get things back and great numbers of people gather around them and there's a revival. And Asa, something happens to him. Here's what happens to him that makes them go to another dip. After they come back up from the roller coaster, they go on another dip, and here's what caused it. They, they face a national crisis. Another nation is facing them, and instead of relying on God and getting their lives right and focusing on God, instead they strip the temple of the gold, and they send it to another nation and pay that other nation to rescue them. Instead of trusting God in the most delicate moments of life, I turn somewhere else. That's what causes another whoosh. So you've got, I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what everybody else wants to do. I want, I, I, I'm in trouble. I need, to, I need to trust something I can see. And that didn't last long before Asa's resolve was gone. Joash then rises up. In 810 B.C., he repairs the temple that again had broken. He followed the words of God, and the people joined him in returning to God. But it was because he was following a high priest who was very faithful, a very strong high priest. And guess what? When that high priest died, he said, I don't need a high priest. I can do it myself. And he started being in charge of everything, and everything messed up. Everything he fixed, he broke. Here's another lesson. You want another dip? Here's what happens. We are all one significant relationship away from falling away from our faith. Did you know that? You think that's true or do you think I'm overstating it? We are one significant relationship. You marry a person who doesn't share your faith, woo, it's going to do that. That's why we talk about that a lot. You get a best friend who is an influential person in your life and they don't share your faith at all and in fact they work against your faith, your faith will waver. That's what happens. You start listening to the, the right voices, the voices that would cause you to be skeptical of the words of God and not think, well, that's not very practical. This is a better piece of advice. And by doing that, woo, here we go again. And that's what Joash did. He started the revival and he ended it all because of how he behaved. Hundred years later, Hezekiah comes on the scene. He leads the people back. Not only do they read the words of God and restore the worship, but then they get the Passover and they observe the Passover for an extra week. Man, they went for an extra week. Imagine us all rising up at the end of the service saying, No, preacher, don't stop. Keep preaching another hour. I can't imagine that. That's how revival kind of works sometimes. But Hezekiah, as good as he was, his son immediately became the worst, most idolatrous king. And he went after other gods that burned their sons in the fire, and they were right back to where they were. Finally, there came a great, a great king, the best king of all of them. His name's Josiah, and he leads the people back. And God says, I am so impressed with you. I will not, I will not lead Israel into captivity, Judah into captivity, until you die. But I want you to know that as great as you've been, the people are terrible. And exile comes, and the people are marched into Babylon, and Judah is no more. It doesn't appear. 
God's just done with his people. God's just said, I'm tired of the roller coaster. You're not faithful to me. Is that what he does? No. Even in captivity, there's a way to turn God back to you. Do you know there's, there's a way to do it? And here's the thing, and that's kind of like the gospel. We say this all the time. Do you think the gospel is easy? How many think the gospel is easy? Okay, let me change. How many think the gospel's simple? There you go. Okay, that's the word we like. I, I like that word better. It's simple, but it's not easy. And, and here's the thing. What it, takes, what it takes to turn your life around is very simple. What it takes to get back in God's favor, very simple. What it takes when you're in trouble to get back right with God, it's very simple, but it's not easy. These revivals every single one of them had the same ingredients in them all every time there's a, a time where the people get back right with God how they do it is so easy and it's always the same thing so it makes a lot of sense to me if you want to get your life right and revive your spiritual life back the ingredients involved are all right there and they're simple and in fact they're all right here this morning there's no reason why you can't be revived even right now to serve God. Here's number one. We're in Nehemiah chapter 8. Because in 440 B.C., this foreign king lets them go back. They're going to go back to Israel after all these years away. They're going to go back and reconstitute Israel. They got the city back. They got the temple back. They got the walls back. It took them a little time because everybody was so, so involved in their own lives. And here's the last little dip we're going to talk about. When you're so busy with your own schedule, you can't work God in there anymore. When the temple was no longer uh, attention, they let the temple go in order to build their own paneled houses. Woo, there it went. And sometimes we're like that. We are so busy with the stuff of us, we just can't fit God in. And that's where they are after captivity. But then comes Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8. And what you see is the clearest revival of all of them in the Old Testament. All the ingredients are right here. Now for those of you, I love what Ryan did at the Lord's Supper today. Let me, let, me, let, let me have a show of hands. When I say the word, they have a revival at Watergate, how many of you think of something other than a Watergate? You'll notice there's people who are 50 and older. They'd have to be older than 50. I'm 50 and it was bare. I, I have no memory of it. Watergate, Richard Nixon, all that weird stuff. And so Watergate. They have a revival at Watergate. And Watergate needed a revival. But this is not what this is about, right? Your memories are a little bit layered here. Number one thing for a biblical revival is assembly of people. It requires assembly I don't mean you put something together. I mean it means us getting together. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The people gather as one. They assemble. Listen, revival doesn't happen in the sanctity of your own mind out in the woods. You can make some corrections of your life, but a revival doesn't happen at your own home and private residence. 
A revival can only happen when there's a community of people that they use the contagion of each other as they're resolved to get things right with God to fuel this and to fire this. And it's greater than me and it's greater than you. And we are bigger than the sum of our parts because as we get together as an assembly, we start this focus and that focus gets really strong as it blends together. Like you're starting a fire and you've got kindling. You need more than just a match on fire. You need a match that lights a kindling, that lights the rest of it, and then it lights the log and then you've got a roaring fire and that's how revival starts we've got to be an assembly and look y'all look around we're assembled there's ingredient one and by the way why are you assembled because God asked you to God knew this was a major ingredient to keeping you revived. And he says, every first day of the week, let's assemble as God's people to allow this revival to work because just by doing it in the sanctity of your home will not do it. I don't fully understand that. But there's something to this assembly thing. Yes, we are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6. Each one of us is a place of the temple, but 1 Corinthians 3, before chapter 6, says we gathered together are the temple of the Holy Spirit in a very powerful sense. It requires our assembly. Number two, it must be generated by the Word of God itself. And if you'll notice on chapter in verse 1, read the people are the ones demanding the word we want the word we want the word you get that we want you bring the law of Moses here we're not having it top down we're not having a preacher telling us we need to care about this the people gather and say we need to hear the words of God and it's amazing to me one of the revivals Josiah where they were cleaning out the temple and they found the words of God they had been lost. How are you at all the people of God when there ain't no Bible around? Do you know there's some churches meeting today having worship and there is no Bible in it? There's no words of God in it at all. What are you doing? What do you expect to happen when you gather around the greatest psychology of the world trying to give a pep talk on how to be more politically correct? I don't care about politically correct. I need life. I need words of life when they talk to Peter. Remember that? That hard teaching of John chapter 6? And they said, Jesus said, you got to eat my flesh. And you know what he's saying there? You've got to consume it. You don't just kind of read at it. You put it in you. You put it in you so that it becomes part of you and you start living out of it. And all these people, that's a hard teaching. we got to leave. And Jesus said, you're going to leave me too? Do you remember what Peter said? Where would we go? These are the words of life. You do not need to be politically correct. You don't need to be socially acceptable. We need to be the people of God who live the Word of God by the power of God through the Spirit of God. That's who we've got to be. Why do we gather around anything else? I'm not going to gather around to hear any kind of reading of social science. That's not enough for me. If it's not the words of God, I'm out of here. Anybody else feel that way? That's what I do too, right? That's what you gathered here for. Nothing less than the words of God. It requires assembly, and we get these words, and these people, listen to what they do. They don't just say, well, let's sit here and consider it. No, listen what? 
Bring the law of Moses and the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women who could understand what they heard. What did they do with the kids? I don't have any idea. They may have had free babysitting. We were at this, we were at this youth function yesterday. I saw the weirdest thing I've ever seen. This lady had a, a kid sling. You ever seen a, a kid sling, a baby sling? Anybody seen one of these? I've seen them in the front. She had it in the back. And I looked, I asked Melissa this morning, was that real baby there? Was she, was this, it was an adult. And she had this sling on the back and this thing was just flopping around on, and she was walking around this, this thing was, I was like, that can't be real. It was a baby. Slinging around on the back. You couldn't even see it in the face. Like, what is wrong with this? You elders need to do something about this, Right? I don't know what they did, but here's the thing. All the adults that could understand it all, all the young people that could understand it all, and maybe they even had their kids, they all, they all gathered around there and had it read on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning to midday. That's a long time, y'all. That is a long time. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, at the, at the ears of all, and the ears of all the people were attentive. They, they not only had the word being read, but they were listening to it. And you'll notice they responded in a very visible, physical, demonstrative way. Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform until they, that they'd made for the purpose, and beside him stood all those men that Wyatt read about. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above all the people, so he was higher above them. He opened it, all the people stood. The words, were being, the words of God were being read. We stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. They said, Amen, when they heard. This is why we do it. This is not just a custom. This is biblical to say amen at the reading of God's words. So when we say and we urge you, say amen. Men and women, say amen. When we encourage that, we're encouraging each other to be respectful like these people. And they lifted up their hands. <gasps> and they lived. Right? bowed their heads, worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. These people heard the words of God, but it got more than that. That, that was the centerpiece. Everything, there's nothing that happens beyond this moment except as it's directed by the words that are read. And they read these words, and that directs everything. And not only that, here's a third one. The people change as a result of submitting to that word. They heard something. Now notice what these Weird named people say, all these people gather around, verse 7, help the people to understand it. As Ezra was reading, these people are interspersed in the crowd. They didn't have any hearing devices like we have back there on that window. They didn't have a, they didn't have a microphone. So how in the world did all these many people get a sermon that day? Well, Ezra read real loud as best he could, but these people interspersed in the crowd, and they let the, help the people understand the sense. That what was actually, well, you know what that verse means? That means this. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. We want you to understand, but then what you notice is then they obey it because on 
Verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of God. Why were they weeping? Why, when you hear the words of God, would you respond in some way like that? Why would weeping be your response? When you start hearing, this is what God asks of us. This is who God is and how great he is. This is what he's done for us. And this is what he asks of us. And this is what we've been given him. Oh my goodness, we've just read the words of God, what he wants. And we, rem- we know what we've been given him, which is nothing. And there's a huge discrepancy. And this is terrible. We are disappointing God. And we weep. That's a great response. Don't weep, go home and eat. Go home and eat and celebrate and be joyful because the words of God are spoken again. And you guys are going to make your lives right. So let's be joyful about this, right? It's what he says. And the people start making changes. They weep because they recognize the change that needs to be made and they come back. They come back for a fourth of a day. We're going to get to that in a minute. But how long has it been something that you read in Scripture that you responded so deeply to? You read it not because you want to read through the Bible in a year and get it over with. Not because you just want, because I know every Christian should read this, but you took it in and it crushed your heart. It did like Acts chapter 2, cut to the heart. This thing I'm reading, needs. there's something in my life that I need to get right as a result of this. I'm reading what God wants and it's not what I'm giving and I want to give Him what He wants. And it breaks my heart and they respond. Can I tell you, better than diagramming a sentence, better than knowing the Greek and the Hebrew, better than memorizing a hundred verses, better than reading the best books, quoting from the best podcasts, the best way to understand Scripture is to do it, to obey it. And these people are going to do that, to do it. You ever thought that you were going to redo a room in your house, redo a bathroom, do a bedroom, and you think this is the last home improvement thing we're going to have to do? You ever thought of that? You know full well that's not true. In five years, that's going to be out, and you need to update it some more. There's always some work to be done in the house, and I'm telling you, There's always work to be done in the Christian life. You keep reading that word little by little, and you make little adjustments as you read that word because you want to be as faithful to that image that God portrays there as you can. That image you see, James says, you look in a mirror and you see what Jesus looks like, and you need need to make some adjustments. You don't have to, it's not like you have to work your way to salvation. I'm just saying you've been saved. You know what Jesus wants you to look like because you're being conformed to the image of Christ, and you see what that image looks like, and you see what you need to do, and you make little corrections. The best way that you can convince yourself you're pretty good is just not read the word at all just live by the general broad strokes of what people think the christian faith is but if you're a person who constantly lets that word be in front of you you will find that there's little things to you're not doing it to get god's favor god already loves you beyond belief and he's already saved you it's not trying to work for that but you want to give him the best image you can because he saved you and you're and you're looking at it every day i want to give him a little more and i want to look a little more at jesus so he can use me to reach the world and you make those little changes and then finally if you look at chapter 9 we're not going to read it but it says The people of Israel confess their sin. It always involves confession. This does not have to be public, but in this case it is. Nehemiah chapter 9, people gather on the 24th day. They fasted. They wore sackcloth. 
They were being confessional. They confessed their sins. They stood and heard the words of God a little more for a fourth of the day, and then they actually did something about it in the next fourth of a day of confession and worship. And that's always a proper response. The more you look at God, the more you see what you need to to make some corrections, and you want to do it. You want to do it. There's some rebellion spots in your life. There's some things that have grown up that you've not intended to be there, and suddenly you discover it because you look at the Word and you want to change it. And you don't just say, go home and let's apply this to our life in some general way. You want to confess it, and so they do. Verses 6 through 15, God is the creator and savior. Look at what God has done. As we look closely at God in worship, we also look closely at us. There's no other way to do it, y'all. When Isaiah saw God in the temple, the one thing thing he did, he marveled at God, and then he saw his sin. When you come close to God in worship and you see him clearly, he's our creator, he's our savior, he's generous, he's patient. He's warned us. His word says it. And he disciplines us. And he's been faithful all along. And the more you look at him, the more you see where you have not. And you want to make that right. And it's called confession. And that leads chapter 9 to chapter 10. It leads to dedicating our lives to God once more. And here's how they did it. Back on the foyer, there is a sign-up sheet bulletin board. Lots of sign-up sheets around here. Every announcement session we have, there's a sign-up sheet for something. Get back here and sign your name. Do you know why we do that? What we could do is say, hey, y'all, who's coming to this thing? And we raise hands. But it's very anonymous, and I don't memorize who got their hands raised. And you might say on the day of, and I just don't really want to do that, really. I just kind of change my mind. I'm not really committed to it, so I won't go. We had 400 raise their hands and 200 show up. Something about signing a sheet makes it a little more official. Something about signing the dotted line where an elder or a preacher can go back at the event and look and say, this guy signed up but didn't show up. Let's go to his house and visit. And because you know that could happen, That day when you go, I don't like fill up to it, but I don't want that elder at my house, so I better go and show up. That's what the sign-up sheet. These people in Nehemiah chapter 10, they write down what they plan to do. Here's how we're going to obey God, and here's how we're going to lead our families, and here's what we're going to do with our lives and our morals. And they write it all down, and they sign it, and they got a bunch of names. And this list of names in chapter 10, I should have Wyatt come up and read every single one of them. Great, great name, just a huge long list. And nobody knows who they are, and you can say it ain't important, but they signed the sheet. And my question is, are you willing to sign it? Are you going to put your name on the dotted line and do this? Or are you just going to talk about it in general terms for the rest of your life? Well, I'll get to it someday. I might think about it. I'll go home and pray about it. No, no, sign the dotted line. Sign the line. Now here's the interesting thing God is brilliant about. He says every first day of the week, I want you to come together. I want you to remember what I've done. Table. I want you to have the word presented. I don't care who preaches, but I care what they preach. It needs to be the word of God and how it applies to our lives. I want the word preached. 
And I want you to give people a chance to hear it. And I want my people who have gathered to open their hearts and worship with their minds and with their spirit, open their minds and say, what, what can we do to give our lives more full devotion to God? I want them to recommit every single time we gather. What do you know, y'all? What do you know that this entire worship service is built on God offering us revival? Now that depends on you. It depends on you. You can, you can use this as a time to just like time it or gauge whether the songs were any good or not. You can do all that if you want to, but God made it possible every single week of your life not to let you get too far from being revived. Maybe, maybe something happened this week and got you a little off. Instead of making drastic moves six months from now to try to revive your heart when it's almost dead, how about making little revival moves every first day of the week? Everything is in order this morning for you to be revived. You don't need to come forward. You and God right there in your pew can make some course corrections. Isn't that what the Lord's Supper is? Isn't that what he means when he says examine yourself? You're making a course correction right there. And he's offering you that amazing opportunity so that your life isn't like this. But for some, maybe it is a public response. Maybe you've committed a sin that is so public so obvious that the only way to really make it right is to make it right in front of a group. And if that's the case, this is a good avenue for that. It's not the only avenue. You could just call the elders or you can just call some people, you know, gather around. You could do that too. And for some of you, maybe you've never responded to God. You don't even have a spiritual life. You can't revive what doesn't even exist. You want a spiritual walk with God. You want a new spiritual birth. That morning is available right now. Or you can wait till after everybody leaves and come. Whatever, it's available right now. But every first day of the week, you've got this amazing opportunity in assembly because that's where revival happens wow it's all here i hope you've been revived and if that requires public response we stand ready to receive you right now as we stand as we sing together